really excited today to be joined by Todd Gillespie and Priscilla Azaveda Russia from Bloomberg. And one of the reasons we are super excited is that they have been doing really fabulous work analyzing the ESG market in general, but so-called sustainability-linked bonds in particular. Some of the most sort of interesting and informative reporting uh, on those markets uh, uh, has come out of Bloomberg, and Todd and Priscilla have been responsible for a good bunch of it. So um, me too and I have been perplexed about these markets for a long time. We have been trying to figure out the extent to which they are, I don't know, scammy, I guess, is about the, uh, I'm not sure of a better way to put it than that. Um, and and we're hoping to have a really uh, informative conversation with Todd and Priscilla about that. So uh, to both of you, thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're really grateful to, to get some of your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great to be here. Can you, and maybe I'll I'll throw this out to, to both of you just for starters, I'm hoping you can give us a kind of bird's eye view of what you think the important questions are right now about um, sustainability linked bonds in particular. But if you wanted to take it uh, away and into of other areas of climate finance, um, feel free to do it. But I'm I'm hoping you can you can give us a sense of what you think the really important issues are right now. Um, I think looking like right now the sustainability linked market. Let's start there. It has three four years old, and I think the biggest take we can take out of all of this is the issuer's approach to this market, like companies coming into this this bond market to do ESG-linked debt, what's their ambitiousness, what do they plan to achieve, what are the main targets, and how they're getting there. I think um, this market has somehow matured from when it started a few years ago or four years ago now even, and now we can actually get to see the results of this and how it's progressing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even zooming out further, I mean, this instrument has really come to the fore when people are talking about the the overlap of ESG and debt. And I think maybe the industry still has some unanswered questions about what the role of debt is in the climate fight and how influential it actually can be. Because I think the big thing that a lot of people focus on all the time is how big debt markets are, how much money is in them. Um, and I think from that, they kind of assume immediately that the market itself can be powerful, but whether or not that is actually a natural conclusion from the size of it, I think is still an unanswered question. Yeah, if it is able to kind of move the needle on climate or not. Priscilla and Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Your study of the 100 SLBs is something we are assigning to our students, and the students are going to be particularly excited to listen to this podcast since we've been talking about what motivated you and how you were able to do this kind of study. And I do want to ask you about that, but I have been puzzling, and I am embarrassed to say, uh, find myself even more confused than I was when I first began thinking about SLBs, which has to be at least over a year and a half ago. And I'm confused about 
the basic uh, logic of these instruments, and I don't mean to say there there isn't, but when I think about it in a form in which to teach my students, I find I I don't really understand it. So here, if I, if you will indulge me, let let me put it out very simplistically. So the the SLBs in it's their most common formulation have these step ups and step downs. So the company says, I'll do all this good stuff. I'll reduce my carbon emissions for the company as a whole. And if I do reduce my carbon emissions, I get like a 12 basis point reduction in my rate for the last few years. And if I don't reduce my carbon emissions, I get a you know, 12 basis points rate increase for the last few years or something like that. Maybe mm -hmm. I, 12, 12.5, it seems like is roughly, uh, is it 12.5 or 125? I, I can't. No, in I'm, Europe, I'm, uh, the standard has been 25. Okay, so it's 25. All right. Basis so, points, yes. So not, not so big, but I'm uh, confused about uh, what the risk allocation is here. So, is the basic idea that the company is taking my money? I'm I'm the investor who wants the world to be very green. The company is taking my money and then saying, "Look, I know you want the world to be very green, so we're going to provide you with a little bit of insurance if we uh, take your money and instead buy a coal plant, and we pollute the universe a lot with the money we borrowed from you." We'll pay you like a we'll pay you a tiny amount of money, and that tiny amount of money is basically uh, the the greenium that we gave you because you thought you were investing in a green bond. Now the puzzle that I have is it's almost as if I'm uh, you know if I think of health insurance, it's almost as if I'm telling the health insurance company that if I get sick, I'll pay them or they have to pay less for my mm -hmm. medical expenses. And I, I didn't see uh, this morning, I was trying to prepare for our conversation. And think, I don't even understand how, how or why these work. It seems like there's insurance coming from the wrong parties, but maybe insurance is the wrong model. So there's an alternate model to think about this in terms of risk allocation, which is I'm just a very ambitious, I'm a climate ambitious company and I've got all these really ambitious goals. And I want to borrow money from you and I want to show you that I, I'm really dedicated. So I'm going to take a lot of high risks in order to, you know, uh, figure out new ways to improve the environment. Uh, but I, I might fail. But in that case, if I'm the investor, I don't want to penalize you for not meeting the goals because then you'll be too conservative. That I, I want you to take risks and if you fail, I'll buy insurance from somewhere else. So those are the two models I I understand that could justify SLBs, but neither one yeah. it seems <laughs> to sense. work. In fact, this is yeah. like the most idiotic product ever. <laughs> I have yeah, a question I, there, but I don't understand it. I'm sure yeah. there is. Otherwise, mm. there would not be billions of dollars of a market. Surely, markets know yeah. more than I do. Yeah. 
I mean, we we spoke to many bankers for the story that we did on this, and I can assure you, you know, the divergence in their explanations uh, for this product was was equally confusing a lot of the time. <laughs> so I don't think you're alone there. I mean, one thing I would say is that a lot of people instinctively think about this as an incentive structure, right? They think about it as a basically like a backstop. I think insurance sort of sort of makes sense. I think you know the 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 bond holders like to think that they are the ones or they at least have some additionality in making the investors hit their targets i think in many ways you're you're talking about an area of the market that has traditionally felt relatively powerless right like yes. equity shareholders like they've you know shareholder activism that kind of thing has been very front of you know the discussion about about you know activism in financial markets whereas debt investors for a long time have felt relatively passive mm -hmm. so now they're looking for an instrument where they can say hey we're we're adding something um we're making sure we're holding the company's feet to the fire here but then very you know very perceptively you you know <laughs> you're you're dealing with a situation where a lot of the time these these companies and these investors maybe wouldn't necessarily want to penalize these companies and this incentive structure is somewhat weak in many cases um but also seems a little bit perverse and particularly when we're thinking about expanding this into into sovereign debt as well you know do you really want to be um you know, penalizing governments, for instance, if, uh, you know, governments of developing nations, for instance, if they're, you know, trying to expand their, um, you know, their, you know, their natural capital, for instance, um, their natural capital reserves, if they don't quite get that, do you really want to financially penalize a, a, a government and a country that's trying to do that? So yeah, it's a very mm. unusual incentive structure. And there are lots of different competing ways. I mean, another, another thing people raised was maybe these instruments just help um, with transparency, they they force they force companies that otherwise wouldn't be as transparent with their climate data to be more transparent. Um, and some companies maybe have been forced to disclose more as a result of this. But what real impact is there if there's not actual emissions reduction in the mm. end? That is a good point. But also, if you looked, um, if you look at this from an investor's perspective, I think the boom in ESG investing in the amount of funds that have come out, especially in Europe, where this market has developed before other parts of the world, before the US and the changing government and everything, you have um, you have fund managers, they're actively seeking to buy bonds that have a label because they need to fill in some sort of like mandate to in and they need to report at the end of the month and they have a fiduciary duty to their clients to say yes i am investing in securities that have this label throughout this reporting investors have said to us look i simply buy this because it has the label and because they are obliged to disclose what they're doing this actually helps me with my work and makes my life a bit easier because i don't need to do all the credit work underlying any other issuance I, I, let, I just want to follow up on, on this discussion and on Mitu's mm -hmm. question, which was, I guess, a little more complicated than I have been thinking about these bonds. Incoherent. And... It was incoherent <laughs> because I'm no. so confused. It was very a, strong words. <laughs> yeah, the the I haven't really been thinking of them mm -hmm. as risk allocation tools. The way I've been thinking about it is that countries announce or issuers if we're if we're not talking about the sovereign space they announce some climate related objectives and they come up with those objectives um independently in in a way that's not really linked to the issuance of of SLBs and then they borrow money and they could just issue a vanilla bond and 
having announced their climate objectives, investors could have some confidence or not that they were actually going to achieve them. And these are just one way to view them is it's just a, a mechanism for adding helping to distinguish yourself as someone who is making credible climate commitments as opposed to someone who's just doing pure cheap talk climate commitments. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, they're distinct Mm -hmm. in that sense, but only that sense. And then from an investor's perspective, it's a vanilla bond with this little, you know, kind of gambly chance that the coupon will go up. But there's a slight bit of extra credibility. And I guess I'm wondering, this is maybe a a preface to asking you what you found when you looked at these instruments, but like, if you understand them that way, they're not quite so obnoxious, right? (laughs) Um, On the other hand, maybe given how small the the step-ups seem to be, maybe they don't signal credibility. They, They mainly signal that the uh, issuers' climate-related commitments are kind of bogus to begin with, like easily satisfied and so forth. So I guess, what do we make of the commitments that they are actually making? Are they Mm -hmm. real? Are they ambitious? Um, Or are they kind of trivial? I think this... I think you make you raise a really interesting point. I think this also though raises several issues around this ecosystem. You know, mm-hmm. firstly, you have, you know, what are these actual targets the companies are setting? Are they doing them with adequate data? Are they covering their scope three emissions in particular? If they're, you know, for instance, a retail company that has a very big supply chain, uh, or you know, or a company that produces products that have, you know, a, a long, uh, you know, life cycle which emit emissions later down the line that the company wouldn't necessarily account for and cover. One of the bonds that we looked at was Tesco, the the massive UK retail chain, um, basically like a Walmart in in the UK, and their bond essentially covered um, only about. I think it was something, it was single digit percents of their total emissions, something like 8%, because the vast, vast majority of their emissions came from their scope three and the use of their products and their suppliers. And, but you had, you know, massive, you know, oversubscription for their bond. You had a lot of, you know, the company coming out and saying, yeah, we're, we're entering ESG debt markets. We're getting sustainability credentials, but they're really doing, you know, for what, from what most sustainability experts in that space would really say is basically the bare minimum for what a company of that sort should be doing. Mm. So the question is really, you know, do you add legitimacy to that? And then secondly, do the second party opinion providers, you know, the people who are meant to be vetting this, are they clued up on exactly, you know, how stringent this is? You know, is, is this really meaningful? And sure, a lot of these, what these SPA providers will do will compare them to peers. But if this is mm. a young market, and peers are also adequate, you know, inadequate essentially on on how they benchmark themselves. Then you're essentially you sort of have a, a very average race to to being mediocre rather than a you know than a race to the top. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Go. So, um, just following up on on Todd's examples, we wrote another follow up story after the initial one with the sim with Carrefour, which is very similar to Tesco, a giant supermarket chain. Uh, based in France, and there as it was at a point where markets were very volatile. The world was just coming out of COVID, and there was a lot of uncertainty about the future of interest rates. 
And uh, they decided to issue to come to the market for the second time with a sustainability linked bond. And that bond was very, it was, if I'm not mistaken, I don't remember it well, it was seven years, the duration of the, the maturity, that bond would mature in seven years from the date of issuance last year. And climate targets, let's let's be serious here climate targets are not seven years long they are longer than that it takes longer for you to achieve what you have proposed and i remember at a time just going to the company and talking to them and asking about the rationale behind it because all of their climate plans on paper they looked quite stringent but their plans were 10 15 20 25 years down the line not seven so why are you doing a bond that matures in seven years if you're not tying it to your actual climate plans that you know will take longer than that? And they said that that was because that was the part of the curve that was most attractive to investors at that point. And the label would come as an add-on. So then you stop and think, is your goal to tie your bond issuances to your climate plans, which take longer, or is your goal to find a part of the curve where there's going to be a bigger demand for your product, where investors are buying out because of the current macro conditions? Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so I, I, I this is, um, this, <laughs> this next point, but I, I do have a question ties directly to what you said, which is that Mark and I have a group of wonderful research assistants all law students who care a lot about the climate market. And they discovered just a couple of days ago that there is great enthusiasm for issuing SLB commercial papers. I I, I mean, I'm sort of speechless. What what are you going to do with commercial paper? Like that's, you know, do tomorrow. This is... This just seems yeah. completely uh, loony, unless there's some logic that is escaping me. But here, here's a sort of, uh, but the, here's my broader question, and I, I hope it will give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the big picture takeaways from your very cool study. So your study looks looked at great depth, much more depth than normally journalists would be able to do. And you you look at a hundred SLBs in considerable depth, and you look at them on a variety of uh, metrics, including uh, is your goal, your climate goal, something that you already met even before you purported to meet them? Is it a meaningful goal? Are there meaningful step ups and step downs here that might actually incentivize you. And if I remember correctly, you started by talking about the Chanel SLB, which got a lot of publicity because it was Chanel that, if I remember correctly, maybe hadn't even done a bond issue. They were like, we were coming to do a bond issue because we love the environment so much. Mm -hmm. And can you give us a sense of... uh, what the overall findings were because you it's not like the usual uh, reporting where you have you know one or two stories and then 
that they're they're sort of headline grabbing stories. You guys actually mm -hmm. did real empirical research, so I'd like like the sort of overall picture if if that would be okay. Um, okay, yeah. So I think the overall findings is that most of the issuances that came to the market, they had goals that were first already achieved, second, weren't ambitious enough, or third, they weren't connected to the real company's climate goals. So they would really account for very small parts of their emissions in the case of like airports or other companies that had like similar like high emitting footprints. In, in Chanel was one of those cases because it was actually the first time that they had come to the market. They were a company that was unrated at a time and they managed to tap a pool of investment grade investors. So it was a company that everyone looked at it at the moment because it's well known and well established for being a private company. So there was some um, obscurity about their finances at the time. While this bond did a good thing that made them actually publish their sustainability report. And that was followed by a massive like build up on plans on what they're going to do in the future with regards to sustainability and cutting down 1.5 degrees of their whole like Celsius of their whole uh, production process. When the reportings actually started to come, it, 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 we could see that the targets that they had set in the bonds, because they issued two tranches in one of the bonds that were already achieved by the time that bond came to the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's 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 like a big data gap here, right? I think there's always a data gap when it comes to emissions, but um, there's always a lag. There's a lag for making sure that these these numbers are account, you know, are, are verifiable, are transparent, are clear to investors. What they mean? Do investors really know what scope one, two, and three means? For instance, you know, when have they hit them? When does the bond get sold? When are they expecting the impact to be reported? You know, all of these things. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think on the ambition point, I think this was one thing that I looked at in particular, and we were basically trying to see whether the trajectory of the company was changing um, in the target that they were setting or the, in the target that they were linking to their SLB. So we looked at the previous few years and said, you know, what's their emission um, pathway been for the previous, you know, three years or so, uh, looking at the decline or the or the rise in some cases, and looking at what the company was expecting in terms of a change of its trajectory. And we were basically asking the question, you know, were they accelerating what they were doing before, or is this just business as usual? And in the majority of cases, it was just business as usual, or it was even weaker mm -hmm. than what their trajectory had been for the previous few years. So this idea of like additionality that the, the you know that the investors may, may be bringing by buying these bonds was kind of called into question. I mean, there is the on the flip side, there is the point about you know sort of uh, you know diminishing ability to to reduce your emissions. You know, the first lot are easier to cut than you know once you actually get to being a really sustainable company it's the last last few yards that are the hardest um so you know there is that to be taken into account but it's kind of a question of you know how do you really see this instrument working and can you really you know incentivize companies on a on a pathway that mm. they're sort of already on in many cases and what are you really bringing to the table and i think one of the really hard things about this instrument is it's very hard to see what additionality you're yes. bringing um, and it's very specific in different cases. And I think Priscilla's last point as well about, you know, does this, is this really material for the company? A lot of the time, they are just tying it to a small part of their emissions. And in a lot of cases, there, there weren't even emissions targets. There were targets, for instance, about, you know, gender diversity on the board of a company, you know, a board that may have 
12 people, but the company itself has thousands. And so you're thinking about really is this systemic change throughout the company that they're bringing? Or indeed, what there was one that we looked at, I remember that had, you know, the target was the company targeted investing, you know, something like 500 million in green solutions within 10 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. It said the target wasn't even anything material. It was just saying, if we don't invest X amount of money in what we consider to be quote unquote green in the next decade, then, you know, we'll have a step up. And it was sort of like, you know, nebulous, nebulous things like that, um, which, you know, really kind of the market, if it's going to mature and going to be, you know, very stringent needs to iron out. And I think uh, what the growth of this market has shown us, because this market has grown significantly fast from the first issuances in Europe. So it didn't have the proper time to mature and for one company to learn from the other because it exploded in such like, uh, it, it, we've seen so many issuers, issuers coming to the market after the first ones. 2021 was the year of SLB in Europe, and uh, what the market has learned from that is that ev- it can learn from that is that every company is different. Every company has a different trajectory. If you are a retailer during COVID, you spent a year closed or even eight eight months of your year closed. So of course your emissions are going to go down. So maybe you should look at it in a different way because you're not operating as the way you would operate in um before COVID. So I, I think the conclusion is the market evolved too fast in a way that if this instrument could show something, is this one solution doesn't fit all and companies are different, they have different trajectories and they have different things that they could do to impact the environment and make so- like the, the real changes. I, I have lots of follow-up questions. I wish I could <laughs> keep you here for for multiple hours. But I, let, let me just, uh, uh, there are sort of two questions I, I'm particularly curious about as to what you were seeing in your study. One, do we have any sense of what the uh, relationship between the greenium uh, is on these SLBs, on the typical SLBs, h- how many basis points, and uh, the step-ups. Are, are they related in any way? And this is coming back to my just trying to understand the, the logic of these products. And the second, you know, you guys, you did this amazing reporting where you dug into the the trajectory of emissions for particular companies and looked at whether or not it seemed plausible that the company was actually improving over time. And you mentioned these second-party reports, and I have looked at some of the second-party reports thinking that they would help me. And usually they're just one or two pages. They they have lots of, they, they use pretty fonts, uh, mm-hmm. but I have I have yet to find a second party report that told me anything but that mm. they thought that the company was being really ambitious and looked really good compared to its peers. But the, I mean, it didn't give me any analysis of what was the 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 step up and whether it was a good compared to what the the greenium was or any kind of market sense or. It just, or what the triggers were, whether the verification, external verification was good. What is your sense? I mean, these people are supposed, these second party uh, verifiers are supposed to be providing us with assurances uh, 
that these SLBs are really good, are they doing anything or it's just uh, an entire auditing industry that's just doing nothing? I will leave the question about Greenium to Priscilla, <laughs> but I would just make the point that I think as a lot of the finance industry is, you have conflicts of interest where right? you have same mm. issue as raised with ratings agencies in the financial crisis yes. you know who is paying for these second party opinions it is the issuers themselves i mean i heard from a couple of bankers that certain um you know certain spo providers were favored over others because of you know because of the way that they look at certain sectors and maybe their, you know, their leniency on certain issues. So, you know, there's there are real humans and politics uh, behind these processes as well. And as an issuer, you're hiring a service that you don't necessarily need to use. If you don't like what's the results, you just don't include it, right? So yeah. that's where the, where the reporting took us in terms of second party opinions. But coming back to the question on Greenian. When this market started, sustainability-linked bonds, they were very rare and people didn't know where to place them. So at the beginning, they did have a Greenian and they were like one or two or three basis points cheaper, which now might seem like, oh, wow, that's not a lot. But at a time when like rates were extremely low or even negative and every basis points counted, especially for European investors, uh, it was something because as... um. One of the investors that we spoke to for this story told me during this process, she said to me, look, I when I look at a conventional bond and a sustainability-linked bond from the same company, I would go for the SLB because they're exactly the same things and the SLB has the label. And uh, so it fulfills other mandates on my portfolio as well. So it's like one size fits all type of thing. So I don't think very much of them as like green instruments, but they do help me on my Article 9 or my environmental mandate or uh, whatever were the regulations at the time and where those bonds would fit. But as this market grew and more issuance came to the market, I think the curve narrowed and the Greenion has diminished. But even though the Greenion has diminished and to this point has probably disappeared, those bonds, they were more attractive to investors and they attracted bigger demand exactly because they carried a label. So the Greenian was not very material, is not very material anymore, but whatever, like the label that those bonds carry brings a bigger and broader pool of investors that wouldn't be looking at those companies. But can you, so I, I hear this from people in the market all the time and it's so it's it's very confusing to me. So mm. everybody starts from the position that there's basically no greenium or it's so mm. small that it's not worth thinking about. And they also emphasize that, you know, um, the, the, the I'm going to bring it into the sovereign context briefly, but the point I think is generalizable. They, they often talk about how, you know, the finance ministers really are focused on the yield curve. and But mm. I think the broader point is that Everyone wants these bonds in some respects to be fungible with a vanilla bond. And yet there's also this story about how once you slap the green label on it, that gives you access to a different and wider yes. pool of investors. And I don't I don't understand how all of these things can be true. If I have if I'm can slap a label on it and get access to a wider pool of investors without alienating my other investors, then there's gotta be a pricing effect. So 
it just seems like this is all magical thinking and that the simplest explanation Um, is the right one, which is that these are bullshit. They're no different from a regular bod. But I do, I do think that the missing part of this puzzle is the behavior of ESG-minded investors. When they buy into a company's bond with a label, they're buy and hold investors. While investors in regular vanilla or corporate bonds as a whole, or even sovereign bonds, they do not buy to hold. Most of the times, they try to they try to make a profit or they try to sell at the first opportunity. While green-minded investors, they are into this for the long run. So the analogy is more or less like when you look at a sovereign, they try now when they are doing the allocations and deciding at the end of the day, who are they, who like, if, let me just go back for a bit. When you sell a bond and... This the the ratio of people wanting to buy this bond is way bigger than the size you have on offer. You have to decide at the end of the day how you're going to split this bond into your investors, who are going to be in, who is going to be out. As a finance minister or debt manager of a country, you are in a good position when you manage to keep the good investors, which you know are the ones that are institutional pension funds that you know are there for the long run. And you try to cut hedge funds because you know the hedge funds are coming in to buy and sell and make profits. And this is going to bring down the value of your paper. And ESG, you can look with the same lenses. Investors that buy into green ESG or sustainable bonds, they tend to buy to hold. While other investors, they are just there for the profit or the value that adds to their portfolios. And that can change quickly with like the macroeconomic conditions. I don't know if I was very clear with that. Yeah, it's it's um, actually, I, I wanted to ask you about the investor base and the mm-hmm. evolution of this market. So uh, I I am, and I, I won't uh, blame Mark on this because he's not as obsessed with the these particular products that as I am. Uh, but oh, Mark no, knows- Oh no, not I'm, affinity bonds. I'm going to talk <laughs> about affinity bonds. So oh. I, I have been obsessed uh, for um, multiple years now with the history of, how countries raised financing during wars when they mm-hmm. had to raise patriotic financing and then how that evolved in the case of Israel for example into raising money from the Jewish diaspora and you know in order to do uh, development projects within Israel and the the particular the targeting of investors was to retail investors so, for example, in the U.S. during World War II, retail, small retail investors who really cared about the war effort, and uh, same with Israel, like the the diaspora bonds for development that they did between 1950 and 1990 is to, to little like thirty dollars, sixty dollars, ninety dollars. The Irish have done this too for mm-hmm. their independence movement. It, it seems most recently the Ukraine. Yeah, well, actually, Ukraine tried mm-hmm. to do one in in the U.S. and it it completely mm-hmm. failed. Uh, mm-hmm. As as Greece tried that too, they weren't able to tap retail markets, uh, at least in the international markets. They were able to do some local issuances, local. but mm-hmm. g- green strikes me as, you know, they're like all these Swedish teenagers who care about the environment, and you know, young people all over the world. Are we moving to something like that? 
Um, I don't know because if it is going to go to like teenage, um, teenage ambitious kids, they're, they want to see change in the world that they live in. Maybe it should. I don't know. But I think it's more of certain mandates, certain funds and how they have to fill in some legislation and obligation to have a, a portion of their portfolios linked to green finance. In Europe, I think this is even more stronger than in the US because the US is a bit lagging behind in terms of like green. I wouldn't say now is lagging behind, but when it started, it was definitely lagging behind. But I think uh, once like the green taxonomy in the European Union becomes a thing and it's established, everyone is going to try to align themselves with that because that's the mainstream and that's the regulation and that's the way the governments are looking into this. So I think some funds, they just have like the mandates to look at those securities. So we've Not taken up a bunch of uh, your time, but I, I wanted to, to squeeze one last question in before we let you go. Um, and, and so part of what I'm, when I started, I think, thinking about these markets a couple of years ago, I was, I don't know whether optimistic is the right word, but at least kind of interested in the potential for kind of financial engineering as a mm. tool to kind of drive climate finance, to add some additionality. And then I've sort of come full circle to the point where I think all these labels should just be, I don't really mean banned, but I kind of mean banned. And, you know, um, issuers can try to make the case that they are green or not, and that that would probably be a better world. But I'm wondering if, um, since you've spent so much time looking at this market, if you have thoughts on the direction it's taking, is it genuinely moving towards more credible, ambitious targets? or are we seeing, you know, some sort of drift, but, um, you know, fundamentally um, more of the same where targets are relatively easy to hit. They're probably um, going to be hit anyway, and there's no real additionality being added by the SLB. I mean, one thing I, one thing I would say was um, that we have seen for the first time recently some companies failing to meet their targets. And I think that was a bit of a watershed moment for this market where, you know, we've had companies like uh, PPC, the massive coal utility in Greece, um, uh, come under some pressure for that. We've also seen a couple of other companies, but the transparency around them missing their targets wasn't that obvious, actually. It took some months sometimes before the market actually, it was actually reported to the market that they'd failed to to meet their targets. So this is a very slow moving mm -hmm. part of the finance financial world. The other thing I would say, if I can speak a bit more generally, though, is... Um, you know, our our colleague in London, actually, Ellen Milligan, um, got a really good scoop last week, basically saying how Rishi Sunak's government in the UK is going to try to expand what it means by climate finance so that it can essentially, um, you know, it can essentially give the same amount of money uh, to 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 overseas, to countries overseas, um, but for for projects that don't necessarily have the same rigor in terms of climate standards. Um, so that they can sort of, you know, fudge um, their commitments essentially, and I think there is a role 
that the private sector and corporate issuers maybe can have in in sort of holding themselves accountable to be optimistic, or at least a, a way that the private sector can sort of at least lead the way in terms of standards. Um, you know, whether that's in in terms of you know uh, debt for nature swaps, or mm. whether that's in terms of you know uh, nature nature bonds for protecting climate climate cap uh, you know nature uh, natural capital sorry in develop in the developing world i mean there are asset managers like pollination which are an advi- MA advisors who are trying to sort of make inroads into this with developing countries um to you know actually create these instruments on a much bigger scale make them you know make governments accountable for mm. what they're doing um and i think right now the the weather market is it's it's kind of a, we're sort of a bit at a crossroads as to whether the market will sort of you know sort of squeamishly avoid uh trying to make bigger steps under cover of you know national governments more or less sort of rowing back on a lot of targets that they have or whether this could be the time when this is the time for companies to step forward and take up the mantle mm. of true ESG accountability realize that they they are the only ones who are going to really be able to build this market in a mature, complex, nuanced, but also truly ambitious way. And I would say, just to add to everything that Todd has said, that in terms of like looking at the market on its own and in terms of issuance, the patterns have broadly followed conventional markets. So during an era of higher interest rates, we see less and less companies coming to the market because this is going to cost them more. So I think uh, they are indeed at this crossroads evaluating what are the options that they have, because as an issuer, as a company, as a debt manager, officer or treasurer, your goal is to maximize your funding, right? So if you look at this market and this market provides you with the best opportunities, it's up to investors to stop and vet that. But investors also need to look at, need to fulfill some mandates. So it's at that point that both parties have the opportunity to make the changes or just stick to what we've seen for the past four or five years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just just to stress, I think on, on all of this again so far, like I think a message as a as a sort of you know, energy climate journalist that I would really want to put out there for, for, you know, for students or for anyone who's like (laughs) vaguely involved in finance is like really like pick your area well before you get into Mm -hmm. finance. Like, you know, really think, yeah, going back to what I said at the beginning, you know, just because a market or an area is really big does not mean it's influential. Just, you know, does not mean that it can produce the end results. You know, there are so many other parts of finance that are still developing to produce climate solutions that are effective. You know, think about a carbon tax, think about meaningful carbon offsets, mm. think about, you know, uh, you know, energy policy and, uh, you know, the right kinds of, you know, we need more financial structures that can make sense of, you know, interest rates and renewable energy subsidies right now that's suffering in the US. You know, there are so many different ways where good finance can impact the climate yes. positively and maybe there are certain areas where there is a lot of effort that is being exhausted for relatively little reward mm. and it's not one solution fits all can I, this has been fabulous and i really <laughs> should close now but i, I want to ask one last question or at least give you the opportunity to to give us some advice if you would so you guys have different different skill sets if i you know todd you you did the 
the accounting in a sense, the auditing of what these companies was doing. And Priscilla, you understand the finance so well and the market. So let's say hypothetically, you had a group of 20 really enthusiastic climate dedicated law students who want good things for the world, but are deeply skeptical because their professors urge them to be cynical about anything that the <laughs> investment banks are enthusiastic about. What would you tell them? And they're they've read your study and they're trying to follow up on it. What would you tell them to focus on from either of your uh, either or both of your uh, different perspectives. If you were to be able to dig further with the assistance of 20, 25 really smart uh, lawyers, what would you tell them to do? <laughs> this is a very hard question. <laughs> well, if they're studying law, they're good at reading contracts. And yes. I think it's the fun things are in the details right Todd so if you if you if you look at the minor things in most cases as you probably know this better than me most of those bonds documents they are templates and they're copy and paste and they don't they don't include the nuances and the details of the financing and what they can actually achieve and the ambitiousness of the companies are exactly in those details so I think it's take one step forward from understanding the market to reading the nuances. Yeah, I if I can if I can somewhat swerve your question slightly, um, <laughs> I would please say, please. I would actually say I think the 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 best use of their intellect could probably be can they come up with an instrument that does better than this? Yes. Um, because fundamentally, you know, there are so many different ways of producing contracts, producing, you know, different types of structures that can incentivize or make companies more transparent. And I think the question a lot of people are asking at the moment is, is this the best we've got? And maybe your students have better ideas fundamentally. And you know, maybe maybe there are there are better solutions that are under our noses. And you know, questions like how do you pull apart the conflict of interest that you have between SPO providers and issuers? How do you benchmark companies in a transparent way? You know, how do you make sure that, you know, companies are compelled to accelerate and improve their trajectory and and find, you know, some kind of, you know, true impact and how can investors really claim additionality? Uh, and can there be legal frameworks for for claiming additionality when you are as an investor are presenting the returns on your portfolio and the ESG credentials of your portfolio to people who are giving you money? Um, you know there are a lot of claims that are being implied um, and taken along the the sort of chain in this product that really needs some rigorous uh, accountability mm. uh, and maybe can be reshaped um, entirely. And one last point that I wanted to add is what I, what also came out of the results of our reporting is the role of the regulators and how they are enabling the proliferation of those financial assets without deeper scrutiny. So maybe it's something that it should be embedded in policy and policymakers should be paying a high attention to. And then um, after they have gotten through designing a more credible uh, SLB, I'm going to hope our students can design an investor who wants to buy it. 
<laughs> um, yeah, and 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 if and if they can't, then maybe that tells you something fundamentally revealing about financial markets. Um, yeah, and yes. and, and I think maybe that is what points you. I think to again what Priscilla just said. Maybe that points you to policy and maybe real stronger mm-hmm. solutions to this, and things like a carbon tax. And but- also like the role of active investing versus passive investing. Right? You need. In the role of AI, when buying bonds and things like what, how, how do you differentiate? How do you look into those documents and these details, and the progression of different companies that are different in nature and have different uh, trajectories to achieve their climate goals? Well, we look forward to having you uh, both back on at some point in the future. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for having us.